Hey, this is Thinking and Drinking. I'm your host, Bart Almond. Over the last 30 years or so, I've worked for major record companies, working with major artists such as Alabama, the Dixie Chicks, and Florida Georgia Line. I've also been writing songs for the past 15 years, have over 50 cuts, two number ones, and made a lot of friends along the way. I'm going to be talking to some of those friends about songs, life on the road, and just life in general. I hope you have as much fun as I will. Dan Weller may not be a household name in America just yet, but he should be. He started the metal band Sixth when he was a schoolboy, recording and touring all over the world and all the time building his producing and songwriting chops. He's gone on to produce an amazing array of artists like Cody Frost, Barry Tomorrow, Chris Barris, and Enter Shikari. The other thing I love about Dan is if we ever get tired of talking about producing and guitars, we can go on for hours about Iron Maiden and Formula One. Dan was good enough to chat with me from his home in London, making him my first international guest. Check him out at danwellermusic.com and listen to what he's capable of. It'll knock you out. Here's my friend, Dan Weller. All right, man. Dan Weller, the other kid from Liverpool. Thanks, uh, thanks for being here, man. How's England treating you today? It's a pleasure being here, bud. Um, England is good. It's, you know, all the standard stereotypes, pissing with rain, dark, quite cold. Everyone's a bit angry. Um, we've got, I don't know if you've heard over there, but we've got like a, a fuel crisis at the moment related to Brexit and not enough tanker drivers. So basically you cannot get gasoline anywhere. So <clears throat> when you're out driving, everyone's driving around in top gear, like trying to conserve their fuel. So everyone's going super slow or you're in a traffic jam because you've gone down a road where there's a, a gas station and there's like a queue for two hours. So everyone's pretty pretty grumpy here at the moment. So I'm kind of I'm just going to get the train lots at the moment. That's my that's my strategy. So were you like limited like uh what's it called rationed with gas like you can only buy 10 liters at a time or something like that? Well, they they have um, imposed that now, yeah, cuz people yeah. were kind of pulling up, like getting all their petrol cans out, emptying yeah. bottles of water, filling them up, you know, being dicks basically. So they're, they're limiting it to like 30, 30 pounds worth, 30 English pounds, and however yeah. much you can get for that. And of course, they're cranking the price of the, the petrol yeah. up because why wouldn't they? So, um, yeah, everyone's a bit angry. It's quite, I mean, there's been some like people pulling out knives in the, in the petrol queue for people uh, pushing the queue. And in fact, when I filled my tank up, the only time I have in the past two weeks, a guy behind me decided he just had enough waiting and did one of those crazy kind of ego masculine things where he swerved really fast. And then he pushed in front of everyone, but but clearly he was a shit driver and he, and he just <laughs> T-boned this car that was in the forecourt wow. and just took the side of the car off. So everybody's out of the car, dragging him out of the car. It was like oh, chaos, man. like all I want is petrol. You've got pet, petrol hooligans right next to the soccer hooligans. <laughs> Dude, yeah, yeah, we've we've we're famous for them. So yeah, they're, they're probably problem is they're all driving the cars. So you can right. have an Yeah, those guys are all fine because they live next door to the pub, so it's okay. Uh, yeah, amen to that. So uh, you were born in Liverpool, and uh, you you moved from there when you were four, I believe. Yeah, I grew up as a Scouser, which is what we call Liverpudlians. Um, and yeah, essentially uh, just moved when I was a kid. Um, I still support Liverpool Football Club, still, I guess, have Liverpool blood. My mum's a full-blown Scouser, but 
Yeah, we moved to London when I was younger. And um, so effectively, you probably wouldn't necessarily tell the nuances of my accent, but occasionally I have bits of Liverpool that come out. But okay. f- for the most part, I sound like a southerner. Um, well, unless so, yeah. you sound exactly like Paul McCartney, I wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Liverpool's a bit like this, you know, talk like that. Whereas London's a bit like this. So, okay. yeah, there's, there's quite a market. I mean, England in itself, or actually Great Britain, the, the differences in accents for like 100 miles up the road, it's, it'll freak you out. You know, it's pretty crazy. I mean, like we can tell like a Texan kind of accent right. uh, from like a, a New York accent. It's yeah. like obvious to us, even more obvious to us than uh, a Canadian to a Californian. Like that's quite subtle to an English person. But yeah. But, but in England, it's crazy. Like, yeah, an hour up the road, the accent is completely different. Yeah, an hour and a half, I could drive now if I had enough fuel, and they'd all be talking like Ozzy Osbourne, you know. Right, right. Um, it's, it's, it's mad. Well, we spent uh, two years ago, Amy and I spent two weeks, I guess, in Scotland, and we could really tell the difference in Scottish accents. Oh, yeah. Some, I mean, I, I would always apologize before I asked, what did you say for the third time? You know, <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, they, uh, they'll be used to it from other Scottish people in some cases, you know. But there's a, if you hear a really broad Glaswegian accent, it's, um, yeah, it's it's pretty, it's probably pretty hard for a lot of Scots folks to, to understand. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's it fascinates me how you can be so close and yeah. speak so differently to each other. Yeah. It's kind of cool, actually. Yeah, it is. It is. So, were you? Was there anybody else in your family that was musical besides you? No, not well. My my uncle is who got me into playing music. He he he's still around now. He's in his early eighties, but he runs like a jazz club. And oh uh, man, he had a jazz band and he made a lot of money himself. So he had a little studio in his house and he had loads of guitars and. And I, I was quite late to the game getting into music, but I went to stay with him, with my best friend, and me and my best friend were obsessed with Metallica and obsessed with the Black Album, and we went there. And he had, and I just picked up a guitar, and that like changed everything. So I, he was my only link to music, and uh, yeah, he then bought me a sort of a cheap guitar for Christmas, and that was it. But pretty much no one else. No, I mean, there's no music really in my heritage, as it were. It was kind of uh, I took a bit of a bit of a strange off-piste course from everybody else in the family. So was Metallica and stuff like that, was that your first? I mean, you weren't into skiffle music or something before that. You just, like, cracked the musical egg and went right towards Metallica. If Without boring the shit out of you with my <laughs> musical upbringing, I, I, I just listened to my mum's music, you know, um, Right. Stevie Wonder songs in the key of life, Lionel Richie can't oh, yeah. slow down, which was like a seminal album for me as a kid. And then Billy Joel, the stranger, innocent. Oh, man. Man. Um, Billy Joel was like, still is kind of my, my sort of benchmark of when, when he was on form. Yeah. You know, yeah. He was the greatest. Um, yeah. So I was kind of in, and I still am into all that. I think anything I've ever liked actually in life musically, I've never gone off. I, I've yeah. always trusted my instincts. You know, you hear some people go, oh, yeah, I used to listen to that when I was a kid. Oh, it's so embarrassing. Right. I, I always think kind of, really? I, I'm proud of all the shit I listened yeah. to as a kid because I still listen to it. But, yeah, it was. I think it was my sister. She, um, she got, you know, when the Black Album came out and Sandman was all over the radio, mm-hmm. you know, I heard my sister used to be like, 
this was before she became like a massive raver. She was into her metal and Guns N' Roses and, and loads of sorts of, um, you know, Nirvana, that just all the mainstream stuff in the early 90s. And I just remember hearing Enter Sandman blasting out of her bedroom. Oh, and man. that was literally it for me. That was, yeah. yeah. I just was obsessed with Metallica from that moment on. But also looking at your career path, and we'll get into this a, a little later, but you have so much super heavy stuff, but then you have stuff that I just freaking adore that I've been listening to a bunch, like um, Cody Frost, and um, who else was I loving? Enter, Enter Shikari, is that how you pronounce that? Yeah, yeah. That are just super musical and stuff. And like you say, you know, oh, you know, Lionel Richie, poo-poo, whatever. But all that stuff stayed with you in the back of your head, whether you know it or not, when it comes to writing songs and it comes to wanting to hear certain certain things on a record production-wise. I mean, you keep all that stuff with you forever, That's which I think is great. Oh, you definitely do, yeah. It's There's, there's a... There's a musical kind of subconscious that we all have that yeah. we, we're referring to at all times. Just don't know we're doing it, and you know for sure, for sure. Uh, I don't. It's you know, it's music's fascinating because you know when you're producing as well, you, you're you're trying to you're trying to bring your own influences and your own kind of taste to the table, but you're essentially working for the artist and and sourcing yeah. their tastes and what they need. So. Yeah, it's it's an interesting sort of mix of all, everybody's opinions, I guess, um, when you're making records. Because one, you know, I, I laugh about this a lot. One, you know, I get bands to make Spotify playlists for me of references, you know, before I start oh, recording. Yeah. And, you know, one band will put a certain song in and the whole band will be like, oh, my God, that's the best sounding thing. And then I'll, I'll be on another record a few months later and I'll notice the whole band will be slagging that band off, you know, saying, oh, right. I heard that song by that. Oh, it's the worst shit I've ever heard. And you're like, that kind of sums it up really. So like, there's never yeah. really a right or wrong. You know, you just have to kind of adjust and adapt. I always liked working with country artists where somebody would say that ZZ Top was a huge influence on one of their favorite bands. And then we would grab guitars and you find a guy never had anything but a Martin D28. He's never owned an electric guitar, never played an electric guitar, and all he does is finger pick. And you go like, how is ZZ Top an influence <laughs> on you? It doesn't even make sense. But, you know, <laughs> well, you probably just how like have you it. not given in to sensation to just yeah. the game knob? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, was, was Sick your first band? And how did that come about? Uh, yes, yeah, six. Well, I mean, the the early version of six was named something else, but um, okay. I mean, it came about really. The other guitarist, uh, Graham, or we call him Pin. Um, he, he and I and the original drummer went to school together, and Pin was into Vi and Satriani and okay. uh, Extreme and stuff like that. So he was more the shred guy. I was more the desperately trying to play vulgar display of power really tight and right. I wanted to play all the rhythm stuff, you know? So, but I, when I first saw him playing at school, he was, he was playing guitar in like the music room with, with this guy, Ali, who became our drummer and they were doing, they had created their own composition 
and it was called War. And I realised later in life, when I look back on it, they just ripped one off by Metallica and sort of <laughs> stolen a war-themed song. And, but I remember sitting in the music room, and I didn't study music at school. I was just sitting there watching him play this kind of Charvel guitar. Yeah. And I was obsessed with Metallica, and Ali, the drummer, was kind of just laying a 4-4 groove, and I was like, whoa. So... Uh, that that literally made me think I've got to play guitar, and and you know a few years later, I'd learned from the Black Album book and a couple of other books, um, and me and Pin formed a band, you know, and I must have been awful, but we started just doing Metallica covers, you know, Seek and Destroy and things, <laughs> and Pin and I stayed together. Ali went off and did his own thing, but Pin and I stayed together, and we ended up forming Sixth and put the band together, and then found all the members and whatnot. Yeah, but um, it, it started at school effectively yeah. with he and I. So where, where does the name come from? It it was just, someone asked me this recently, strangely. It was literally, we were sat around in the living room um, trying to think of cool names that are associated with the number six. It's pathetic. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and someone said sixth is quite cool. And we were like, what a, a bit of a mouthful there. Should we just swap the X for a K? And there became the band name. It's See? kind of the shittest story ever. But, uh, <laughs> you know, when you look back on it now with hindsight, it was actually quite cool that we created our own little word because we, I guess back then we didn't realise how difficult bands find it if their name is something that's obviously Googleable and, and has right. many meanings, you know. So in a way, it, it kind of helped us down the line. It was its own made-up thing. So you said the other guy was a, a Vi and Satriani kind of guy. Were you mostly like a, a Hetfield kind of guy as far as influences? And were all your influences, your early influences, were they all guitar players or did you have writing in the back of your mind at the time? Or did you even know that normal people like us could write songs? Um, it's hard to look back really. I think at the time, yeah, Hetfield was God to me. And yeah. Like, you know, I watched the year and a half in the life of documentary of the making of the black album. Oh yeah. Just, just on loop. I just watched it constantly. I wanted to immerse myself in that world. Um, so I was obsessed with that, but in my head, uh, yeah. Cause it was sort of, uh, like, well, you know, nineties, essentially the sort of roadrunner era, you know, it was just Sepultura and Slipknot didn't come out until what, 98. So we hadn't got to that yet. So right. it was this sort of, Metallica, Pantera, Sepultura, Fear Factory, Cannibal Corpse, Morbid Angel, bands like that. Yeah. Uh, we, we were listening to all of it, and I didn't – I never really even considered whether there was a scene or whether you could form your own band. And, you know, I just when – you, when you were that age, sort of pre-internet, if you like, it was just small people, big famous bands. There was no in-between. You know, <laughs> yeah. you didn't sort of go to local gigs or anything. It's different – where, where I grew up, there wasn't like a sort of a local scene or we didn't think, you know, and it was when we formed the band and we were like, shit, what do you do when you form a band at school? Yeah. How do you get out to the big stage? Where's the the, the link? And we didn't, right. we had no idea. Yeah. Us, but um, I guess it, it uh, we found our way eventually quite quickly. But yeah, I mean, really, it was all about Hetfield and all about wanting to be a tight rhythm guitarist who wrote tasteful stuff. And I guess all my I, all I ever wanted was my riffs to be and I've always used the same description was sort of guitar shop riffs I want them to be a, riffs that you could you'd see a kid in a shop and granted it's probably happened very little ever but <laughs> but I didn't want them to be kind of nondescript chugs that meant yeah. nothing I wanted them to have something 
you know, in my own way, sort of iconic and recognisable about. So that was my drive for, for when, in terms of influences and what I wanted to bring to the table. Well, it's crazy. I mean, your band, to me, with the amazingly tight rhythms and stuff, was very heavy and very chuggy, but it was also very musical. And I don't know if that was music and Mikey's vocals, the combination of that, but it's not big and low and growly Meshuggah kind of stuff that you just kind of, after a couple songs, you go, okay, well, that was cool. Now I'm going to go listen to some Lionel Richie. Where your guys' music <laughs> was very musical, I always thought. Yeah, I mean, it was supposed to be. I mean, I think because we'd grown up on this, all this kind of 90s metal, if you like, we also listened to all that death metal stuff. But I was always, and I still am, I was always put off by the the sort of nonsense lyrical stuff yeah. in death metal. I love the riffs. I love the I love the technicality of it. Yeah. For the rest of it, like talking about garroting humans, I was just like, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" <laughs> so I, I wasn't interested in that, and I thought it was a bit embarrassing, and I just didn't want any association with it. But I wanted the riffs, you know. Yeah. I wanted all the sort of technicality, the diminished evil shit that Slayer used to do as well, you know. Yeah. But I wanted, I wanted it to be tuneful with melodic vocals and things and i guess at the time there weren't that many bands doing that it seems crazy now because there's there's thousands of those bands who sort of have become quite popular playing really progressive metal but yeah. back then there was kind of there was prog and there was metal and there was death metal and there was quite defined genres weren't there right they weren't really kind of crossing over and in fact slipknot were one of the few bands that brought things that we love from death metal and ridiculously fast kicks and stuff yeah um to kind of the mainstream um but yeah we just wanted to, to to take all the things we love from cannibal corpse all the things we love from pantera and stuff and we wanted to do something really brutal but really tuneful where i don't know where and, and i guess we we always wanted it to be a band where it would be hard for anyone to cover you know we wanted hmm. the drums were so unique to dan and we, we yeah i think they get so unique to us and mikey's vocals were just completely unique yeah we used to think well if you want six you have to come to us to get it and, and that was what we felt was our our sort of usp if you like um, that's cool man i still feel that yeah yeah did you opt to the, use any of uh seven and eight string guitars and anything like that never no no i mean listening to morbid angel they he used a seven string he was one of the first people to yeah. do it in metal if i recall uh, where the slime live um on domination and probably before that actually but that was the album i got into them but no it always seemed too complicated i was already dealing with six strings and that was enough kind of thing i love hearing you say that i love hearing you say it just yeah and i'm I'm the same now i think i've played a seven string guitar three times in my life and i pick it up i'm like uh, i don't know what to do put it away i just don't it's not for me and it might be just like an age thing or a stubbornness thing um, because you know some records with eight string guitars and the way that they're utilized now is stunning and it's brilliant and why oh, would you love that but I'm just not into it I'd rather have yeah. a six string and tune it down <laughs> like Tobin Abasi and Animals as Leaders and those guys you know they don't have a bass player but they have two I think nine string guitars and it's all all over the I mean and the technicality of it is just mind boggling I do kind of yearn for a melody once in a while but well yeah this is the thing I mean the I, I mean, I, I can't speak about that because I'm not that familiar with them, but we've played a few shows of them, but I don't really know any of their songs, to be honest. But 
Um, yeah, we're, we're in a strange era now, actually, with, with, with progressive metal, where, because, and it's, you know, you could talk about this for hours, but where it's yeah. kind of, it, it, the scene has been born out of uh, the internet, and the scene has been born out of um, guitar emulation, uh, amp emulation, and programming drums. And, um, you know, when I grew up, metal was essentially an aggressive form of music. It was there yeah. to make you want to fucking drink beer, smash stuff up, headbang, and it, it yeah. brought out a sort of a rage in you that was in a healthy way. Um, whereas metal now, even if it's really, like, technical and tuned really low, some bands... Don't, they, they still don't sound heavy. It sounds kind of just like, like a, I don't know, like they're they're doing it in front of the mirror to see how good they are, you know. And that that's that, interesting. Not, you know. Which amp you used, and who gives a fuck which drum sample you've just programmed? Right. With like, oh, metal to be visceral and be like brutal, um, but you know that's there's a reason why people like music of all different shapes and sizes and i just i still get my kicks when metal is heavy like yeah. that's just the way i'm i'm wired i guess but um sometimes it's also necessity like i use a, a fractal axe effects but it's a lot of that is because my little home studio is in my house, which is also my wife's house. And so I can't have a, you know, a, a boogie, you know, on 11 with, you know, with, through two four twelves. even though I would love it to, to do that, you know, a dual rectifier or something, but I can't do that. Otherwise. No, dude. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm sold on, on, uh, Amp Sims. In fact, there's an album I'm about to do, and we've just been discussing with the band, and we were like, because the neural DSP stuff is so fucking good, like so good, um, that, you know, one of my best-sounding records that I've produced and mixed, I absolutely love it. N- none of the guitars on it are through an amp. It's all Amp Sim. What did you say it was? So we have D- reached that point. DSP? N- neural DSP, they're called. Um, oh, Neural SP. Yeah, yeah, and it's... Dude, the, the stuff's just, yeah, it's crazy. And, it, it, you know, like with Axe Effects or like with... Um, Camper, Camper, yeah. Yeah, it's changing the game because you can tour now without having to check in, yeah. like, flight-cased amp. You can just put it in your rucksack and off you go and die. Yeah. And even now, like, who was that I was speaking to recently? He just toured in the States or toured abroad somewhere from over here. And they they don't even bother taking the because they need a few Kempers and they can't get them in their luggage, they've decided now they just take the USB stick and hire a Kemper at the other end and just load their settings on. Yeah. So so they're literally carrying their whole tone in their inside pocket. And it blew me away, actually. Well, and both Fractal and Axe Effects have fantastic pedal boards that you can put in your backpack that have all the tones in them. And they're also probably in a laptop so you take both of those in, in a laptop and maybe a gig bag with two guitars and you're going, where's the stage? Let's go. <laughs> uh, it's, it's incredible. It's, I mean, it's, it's all down to how you program those things as well. You know, sometimes you'll hear a Kemper live and it will sound like dog shit, like the yeah. worst thing ever. But then I'll hear one that sounds amazing and it's down to how you program it. You know, equally, we've all heard real amps and cabs on stage sound like dog shit. So I guess it's, yep. it's about... Oh, uh, the person who's doing the work on it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, how did you get into production? 
Um, I mean, yeah, watching that Metallica documentary over and over again, that just made me want to do it. And then when we formed Sixth, and we, because it was just sort of before the internet and before streaming took over, there was still a lot of money in the industry. And for some reason, some crazy dude thought, I'm going to give Sixth a load of money. And we got to work with Colin Richardson, who was a bit of a hero of mine because he'd done, okay. you know, Machine Head and uh, Demanufacture and loads of great records. And uh, I just, yeah, I was in, uh, you know, I remember at school on my kind of pencil case r- drawing these pretend albums of the future produced by Colin Richardson. Of course, here I am sat with Colin Richardson thinking, holy fuck, this is, I'm making right. my dream come true. This is, it was addictive, you know. <laughs> and um, I just sponged everything off him. I was just like, I mean, when I look back, I had no idea what he was doing. It was just knob twiddling. But I was fascinated just by the whole process and just being in that, domain i just thought this is for me and i think it was towards the end of it was the first sixth album it was towards the end of the records when he said something like um, you should be a producer and really? I, I mean and, and it was probably like a throwaway comment that that he just said off the cuff to sort of boost my ego at the time because i was a young kid but i took it literally i was like okay if you yeah. if my hero's telling me that then you know bring it on so um, that was it really then I just became obsessed with it and then you know if if I'm really honest when you're in a sort of prog metal band you if you've got your head screwed on you're thinking how long can this last yeah you know is there a ceiling am I ever going to be able to retire doing this do I need another option in my life and it, and it made perfect sense to me to just have the band going and be learning how to produce and then start earning money producing other bands um, using the name of sixth because people at that time were starting to get to know us. So I was yeah. realizing I could say, Hey, I'm that guy from that band. Do you want me to produce your demo? I'll do it for free. Cause I just wanted to learn. Right. And I was managing to get loads of bands in. So we just carried that process on and that just evolved. And eventually I started to be able to earn money from it and never look back really. So where you are now, how do you decide who you're going to work with and who you politely say, no, thank you to. Um, I mean, being brutal, if something sucks, I just won't do it because I don't want my name associated with it. And if something sucks, but has like a a rich parent or a rich person in the band, I still won't do it anymore because no, no money's worth. Yeah. You know, you need to be seen to be honest and you need to be seen to your words needs to mean something in life. And I think if you're a producer, your ears need to stand for something. So I, I tend to turn stuff down if I just do not like it and I just don't think I can help. But I would never be cruel to a band. I wouldn't tell them. Yeah. That. It's not, you know. Um, and, you know, and, and actually it's it's an interesting question because I'm asking myself the same question at the moment, like what band should I take on? Which artist should I not take on? Because something that's always worried me in my career is that I could be perceived as being across too many genres. Cause I just love music. You know, I've worked with country blues, death metal. It's it's, there's a point where it's actually a hindrance to your career. So I took a bit of time out this year, which I'm still on now where I've kind of tried to understand what I love about producing, what I love about music, where I've enjoyed my job the most, where I haven't, where I've earned the most money, where, mm-hmm. I where I've had to really bust my balls to get a result where it's actually come really easily. 
trying to get some clarity on that so that my next 10 years in this game, if I'm, you know, God willing, alive, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll have a, I'll have some sort of trajectory based on, you know, some kind of informed decision making. Because when you when you start producing, you're just constantly taking on work. You're taking it on. You're in the studio day right. and night, day and night, and you never actually stop. So this is the first time in like 20 years I've stopped and gone, what's just happened? Where have I been? What have I done? Yeah, um, it's been really helpful for me. Like I, I would urge everyone in any career, if they can, to stop and just take stock, um, because I think it it's helping me understand the purpose of stuff because you know you're probably the same there's certain things you've earned really good money on but you're completely unfulfilled and yet so yeah. then you're left asking yourself what's the point of anything because if i'm not satisfied by getting a good paycheck and i'm not satisfied by the job i don't feel i've made friends with the artist was have i just wasted a month of my life what what was it you know so i i like to understand why i'm doing stuff um and sometimes some answers that's awesome, man. And, and sometimes the nice paycheck just lets you go do a, a vanity project or whatever you want to call it that, that, you know, they don't have any money and blah, 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 but it's going to be awesome. And it's going to be so great. And sometimes there's a little tightrope, I suppose, with that as well. Yeah, man. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think you, if you held a gun to any producer or creative's head, anyone that's worth their, you know, that's a decent human, you you work as hard on something if you're doing it for free yeah, as you would for the, the highest pay packet you've ever had or whatever. You, 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 that's just the way you approach things. So if you're going to, if you're going to do that anyway, you need to just find a way of enjoying every day. You know, that's why, like you say, sometimes if there's a project where it's a bunch of young kids, they've got no money, but you know, you're going to have the best time and actually, with the cynical hat on, you know, the chances are you'll do a good job and someone will hear it that has got money and yeah. they'll pay you to do their, their record. So there's always a win for you either way. You get to make right. new friends, you get to practice your trade, you get to give this band what they really need and help them out. And someone will hear it somewhere and say, Hey, I heard that thing you did. Can you do my record? And then you, you earn your money that way. Yeah. <laughs> so well, I, I do a lot of that. Your production work is just so varied. Like I was saying earlier from Cody Frost, who is just crazy nuts good. I freaking love her. And to Barry Tomorrow, Chris Barris. Is it Ellis Bailey? Ellis, yeah. Ellis, okay. I think. And like I was saying, <laughs> I think. Enter Shikari. I mean, it's like you're just all over the place amazingly first of all it's just obvious that you're super creative and a great producer but do you feel do you feel you have your own style like i know bob rock is a huge you know we're both you and i are he's our heroes and like nick rasculanitz you know there's another guy that obviously has his own style do you think like you were talking about with so many genres and being so varied do you think you have your own style or does your style just is it dictated by the band, by the artists themselves? Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? I mean, I've always, um, I've always prided myself, if that's the past tense, of I've always wanted to be a producer that adapts to the uh, the act because yeah. for me, there's nothing worse than 
a producer where you know what the band's going to sound like. There's, there's so many of those producers out there, and, yeah. and they they clean up. They get so much work because a lot of bands want to sound like the contemporaries. Right. That's, that's the whole reason they are, especially in metal, actually. So there's certain producers who are just like, oh, yeah, I do that. Okay, cool, we want that, so we'll go to you then. I've never, th- I've never thought about taking that path because I've always thought it was just, I just felt a bit lazy. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of meet the band and go, right, who are you? What are you? What can we do to, what can we do to get the best out of you and make the record for you? And, and there's a few producers that I really look up to that have approached things like that. Alan Mulder is probably the first person that comes to mind because he'll do like the Killers or Nine Inch Nails or um, just pop. You know, he's just he'll do a bit of everything. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you were looking at the very top of the tree for people who are known for that, Rick Rubin would be the perfect example. He's just done it, done it all. Um, so I, I, I do love that, but 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 the truth is, in in you know, in reality, although that's all good and it's a great way of doing things, it means you miss out on lots of stuff because mm. people will assume you're. What does that guy? I don't really know what that guy does. Uh, so we won't go to him. We'll go to this guy because we know exactly what he does. Right. So most of my work comes off the back of specific records where someone said we love that record. We really, you know, so that kind of approach still serves me but it's just um yeah it's it's intrinsic in in the process of me taking this time off to be honest because i'm like is it important for me to make every record different from the last with completely different genres or is it important for me to for people to know what i offer and somewhere in between those two things is the answer um, I just don't want to be the guy who uses the same snare sample on every record. I just, I'd sooner shoot myself in the face than yeah. be that guy. I just don't want to be that guy. So, you know, but there's so many great producers out there. I listen to a lot of podcasts at the moment because I want to hear what other producers are thinking. You know, there's a lot of people like me who just don't want to be doing one thing. They want to be doing it all. And yeah. I guess it, it can work, you know. <clears throat> I've lost you, but. Sorry, I hit the mute button so I could cough. I'm sorry. (laughs) There are definitely certain producers that are of the, let's listen to the songs and let's throw the amps and the drums up and go, you know, and that's about all there is to the production stuff. And Mm -hmm. and I don't, sometimes that kind of just muscly Les Paul through a Marshall stuff is, is fun, but there's not a lot of, sometimes there's not a lot of subtlety to it and, I'm, I'm get, I don't know. I don't want to bad math anybody, but um, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I love what you do. I think it's, it's so cool, but thank you, buddy. as a rock producer, I mean, are you helping with writing? Are you helping with arranging vocal lines, harmonies, all the above? Um, it, again, it depends on, the act some bands will, will will come to me and say we need help on all of the above right some bands will come to me and, and think they need help but then when i hear all their demos it's all there it just needs arranging and i'll take on more production approach i mean most bands i work with i i have a co-writing credit on because more often than not they'll need help yeah and with cody it's kind of 50 50 i make all the music she does all the vocals and that's how we work. Oh man. Um, and and that, so it's just a simple situation. It's like a, we, you know, and obviously because she's like a, a sort of girl in her early twenties, 
and I'm a guy in my early 40s, you know, <laughs> I lean on her references culturally because yeah. you know, I'm not one for like trying to pretend I'm down with the kids or some shit. We all have different, <laughs> we have different places where we're at culturally. What I choose yeah. to listen to, but equally, when you're a producer, it's your responsibility to understand what's going on, what's advancing musically, how it's being made, why it's popular. I take an interest in that, even if I wouldn't wake up and listen to the next little something from LA. Right. It doesn't mean to say it's any less good. It's just not for me. Yeah. So yep. with, with exactly. Cody, it's kind of like, um, I'm, I, you know, I get to make playlists that have some crazy shit on that. I'm like, wow, this is like mind blowingly good stuff that I would never have discovered without knowing her. And right. so for me, it's like, she's like a portal to like cool music that I would never have otherwise had. And then I'm kind of like, well, how can I bring my flavor to it? And how can I make it make sense to me? So I'm not just pastiching some young bedroom producers from yeah. TikTok. How do I make it my thing and bring a flavor to it from my past? So with a bit of progressive stuff and guitars or whatever. Um, so we, we have this kind of weird working relationship where we find a sort of middle ground and, but essentially I, I handle the music and she's the vocals. Yeah. But if I was working with bands, it, it's often very different because bands, most bands write their own songs, you know, yeah. um, occasionally they'll co-write with other singers from other bands, or whatever, but normally there's bands and bands helping each other out. So I normally just find a way to, to fill in the gaps where there might be, there might be a demo there where the A&R person saying to me, I don't know, this just doesn't feel right. I don't know why it is. And the singer's going, Oh, this is my favorite song ever. I just don't want to touch it. Yeah. I'll be the one to put my foot in it and say, Look, I see why you love it, but there's definitely a problem here and that this could be better. And I think we should try this, not to mention your label who are paying for it. We want them shouting at everyone about how classic this record is because they're the ones that are going to make you bigger. Yeah. You do not want to deliver a, a record to them that they're a bit meh about. So I'm often the person who's sort of taking a band's ideas and trying to make them a bit better. Um, I guess that's, probably my main role yeah. well you do that in a in a rehearsal hall or do you you don't rent a studio and then go in and and start unpacking all these songs i mean you kind of try to tear all that stuff down in rehearsal so you don't spend all the money in the studio yeah i mean you know a lot a lot of the job of a producer these days more than ever really because budgets are so much tighter than they used to be if only it was the black album and i was bob rock you know right he's fucking just pissing money for fun but now it's a lot more like um i want to protect the band's money because labels more often than not won't know the right way to apportion the money on the recording yeah uh, they'll know what their, their their top budget is and that's kind of it and i t I, I see it as my job to go okay definitely not going in the studio yet because it's gonna be like 500 pounds a day um, let's make sure we do as much prep as possible before we get yeah. there. So in some cases, depending on the style of the band, it's a rehearsal room um, because, you know, the band are going to play primarily live and it's important to be around the noise and I'll try and go and see them live at a gig as well. Um, more often than not, though, if it's kind of a, an alt band, you know, like a metal band or a sort of radio rock band or something like that, it's the ideas are all floating between each of their laptops. You know, this person's on logic, this person's on Cubase, I'm on right. tools, and it's kind of a case of, oh, fuck, how are we going to do this? So, it, you know, I tend to just take all the stems from everyone and, and become the hub. And then 
flesh out the songs in in the digital world if you like um you know i, I would love it if it, all bands could just go in the studio and play their songs but yeah in this day and age that does not that's not how it works they're mostly writing the final bits of the song as you get to the studio right um, because it's this part of digital recording there's this ever this piece of string that you never know when it's kind of at the end you just can keep tinkering with it and, and that <sighs> creates this this kind of culture of nothing's ever done so yeah you know bands never know when to go yeah we've got a song let's 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 jam they're kind of they're adding a synth or they're adding this or they're adding that and, and that's kind of how it is you know and i have to find a middle ground between you know because a, a, a lot of bands just assume a producer's job is to make them sound like they can play their song and to an right. extent that is my job <laughs> yeah. but i would like it a lot more if drummers could come in and actually play the yeah. song because I'm the one who's got to sit and edit it, you know. So I try and encourage bands to, like, get the songs right, but also make sure you've practiced lots. Get a drummer on a drum pad or whatever it takes to make sure you're as prepared as you can, because the soulful sort of, you know, the soulful part of a performance, it can only come from a, a player who's in the zone who knows what they're playing, and then yeah. they can start to, like, play it with feeling. If they're, like, clinging on for dear life, like, shit, what's the next part? Shit, shit, shit. You don't really get that feeling through on the record, and, um, you know, I think it's it's important. Yeah, I suppose a lot of younger people are used to playing along with click tracks and using Ableton and whatever live. So do you find that tempos are are better than maybe they used to be when drummers just played live? I mean, because like one of my favorite band is probably Iron Maiden. And, you know, Nico, his, his tempos go up and down and up and down, but it really helps the song breathe to where if he was playing with a click track, it'd probably really suck. But so, so much of this stuff, like you're talking about where you're super duper tight, man, it's like they couldn't, they would have to almost play with a click track. So is everybody kind of used to doing that or is that? Yeah, pretty much. It doesn't mean to say they're always great at it. If right. Be yeah. Tight, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, I'm picking on drummers here because they're kind of the, the foundation, if you like. It's a, a lot of drummers that play to a click religiously think they're tight. Yeah. They don't realize how far off the click they are. <laughs> and and I don't ever want to kind of like kick someone while they're, they're like, you know, when, when someone goes into a studio, that's supposed to be the high point of their life where they're having loads of fun. Right. It's not for me to say, hey, wipe that smile off your face. You know, you're miles yeah. ahead of the click. But sometimes I'll find subtle ways to make them aware or give them help as to how to improve what they're doing. And sometimes it's something as simple as just cling onto your right hand a bit more. Imagine that right hand is triggering off the click. And once they start locking that, they find everything else starts to float. You know, little tricks. But, you know, I mean, the reason clicks are so important now is because there's so much duplication as well. You know, you might quad track yeah. guitars for the verse and the chorus. And if we had to record every song you know, in certain genres of music where it's really technical and there's footloads of harmonies and, you know, I think if you if you had to do every section, sometimes the songs would just go on for too long and the recording sessions would go on for too long. So often there's a lot of duplication and cutting and pasting of choruses if they're technical yeah. stuff and being on a click obviously helps that. Not to mention if there's loads of ARP synths and stuff that are, that are on a grid, as soon as you go into the realms of playing without a click, you know, when you come to have backing tracks live and stuff, it's just hell on earth. You'd have to have a MIDI map click like this, 
for a lot of people wouldn't work, you know. Yeah. Well, you're such a slamming guitar player to bands that you work with lean on you for your guitar work. Do they ask you to play guitar on the, or you just like, you just kind of go, I'll help you with gear choices and I'll help you with that kind of stuff. But you're going to play this because you're in the band. Or do you, do you jump yeah, in? I, do, I never play guitar. Like with Cody, I do because I'm making all the music because most of his yeah. programs or, you know, whatever. But with bands, the only time I ever pick up the guitar with a band ever is when they say, can you play a sixth riff if it's someone who has heard sixth? That's oh. as simple as that. I don't pick it up for any other reason. And yeah, it's it's infuriating if there's a guitarist who's not got good technique or got terrible vibrato. Or yeah. Like, every time they fret a power chord, they're their kind of wedding ring fingers pressing really hard and bending it miles out of tune. Right. You know, all that stuff where you're like, fuck, we just play it properly. But, you know, <laughs> I, I have to just, I have to basically just be super, super patient because, yeah, no one likes the guy who's like, give me the guitar, I could do this in five minutes or whatever because you're right. just like a dick. And it's not, you're not being paid to be that guy, you're being paid to help them. But there is a point where in the studio sometimes when you're editing the fuck out of something so much, you're like, was this even worth it, you know? Right. Um, but no, short answer to your question is I don't touch guitars in the studio, only maybe to get a tone occasionally, because sometimes when you're listening to a tone through the speakers, you're making judgments that, that are slightly different as to whether you were playing them. You feel it. Okay. And then you're like, oh shit, actually, this is a bit dull. I need to brighten that up a bit. It's weirdly, I, I don't know why that is, but you make different choices when the guitar's in your hand. Yeah. Um, so I tend to do that a bit. Um, Oh shoot! I just had a good question for you. Now, what are what are most of these guys using? I mean, are they using amp simulators and stuff, or are are they bringing in walls of marshals and stuff? Yeah, it again, depends on the band. Depends on the band. Depends on the band. I mean, most bands, more often than not, are using Kempers now. Yeah, I don't think I've recorded an Axefx fractal for ages. It's all Kempers. Um. You know, for, for the reasons we spoke about, they're going on tour and it's cheaper and it makes perfect sense. Yep. Um, especially with Brexit and stuff now for a British band, if you want to tour Europe and you have to like oh, fill in for in forms for every country. Um, if you were like dragging loads of heavy gear around, it'd just be a nightmare. So um, most bands are, are Kemper and, and, you know, often they're, when I wheel out loads of amps in the studio, they're kind of like, it's like a toy shop because they're not used to it, you know. Um <laughs> And, uh, you know, but, but, but funnily enough, Chris Barris that you mentioned earlier, whose album I've just done, I just saw him support Blackstone Cherry. Uh, on oh, yeah. Um, they just played the Royal Albert Hall, which is an amazing venue. Yeah, those guys are my buddies. Oh, dude, yeah, w wicked band. And yep. um, Chris yep. has known them for many years. And I, oh, I great. They're, they're quite close. So, um, But we, we'd used, in the studio on the record, we'd used... Um, the Richie Cotson Cornford signature. Oh, and yeah. I'm familiar with them. And yeah. the Cornford went bust a few years ago. And someone wheeled it in. They didn't wheel it in, they just put it in. But they, they put it on the thing, and I was like, oh, I've never seen these before. But I've, I've played a few Cornford combos, and they sounded really lush. Yeah. But this amp was like the best sound. I mean, I had a diesel VH4. We had um, some Victory amps, some British amps. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, an, an app called Audio Kitchen. So if you're familiar with that, yeah. um, really crazy, crazy little boutique amp. And we had some like orange rocker verb, and we had loads of great amps basically to play with. And um, this uh, this Richie Cotson Cornford, it just destroyed everything from a great height. It sounded 
ridiculously good. A clarity all the way to the bottom. And anyway, once we track the album and, you know, uh, the, the very final thing that often happens on most records I do now, there's a period where the in-house engineer has to sit and profile the amp tone for the Kemper. Right. Um, and, you know, we profiled, well, I did, and I just watched that super profiled the uh, the Richie Cotson amp. And anyway, when Chris came on stage uh, last week at the Royal Albert Hall, you know, it's a fucking big venue. And yeah. His guitar tone was impeccable. I could not believe how good it was. And it was this Kemper profile we made yeah. on the record. And it made me, and I'm often a bit of a, I poo-poo Kemper's live a lot because I've heard some terrible yeah. Kemper's live. But his guitar tone was unbelievable. And um, yeah, it just made me realize like that is the seriously the best of both worlds. We went, we got a great tone. The record's got the amp on live. He's got the same tone. It sounds really good. Yeah, they profiled it really well, so the dynamics are really good. And, you know, he was doing some like bluesy kind of, you know, rolled off licks, and they they sounded legit. It didn't sound like a, you know, didn't sound like a Kemper to me. Yeah. So. <laughs> Do you sometimes going back to when you have a guitar player that you know you're just pulling your hair out with or a drummer, everything? Do you ever go in the back of your mind and just go, "There's no way in the world these cats are ever going to be able to play this live," or do you just push on sometimes i'll say guys you need to make the right decision here for yourself because you're going to put yourself through hell live you know for example if the song's in a key where the singer is like right at the ceiling when they've warmed up and right get there then the chances are live they're never going to get there maybe in a couple of years if this range is extended so sometimes i'll suggest key changes just for the sake of the singer's throat um and if there's a drummer wanting to do something crazy that leading with a left foot and doing loads of offbeats with their left foot and they've drawn it in on Cubase and they've never actually played it, I know from experience with Sixth, watching Dan, our drummer, who was insane. Yeah. And he was amazing with his feet. I know I know certain kick patterns that are going to be really difficult, unless you're like Thomas Lang or Thomas Harker from Meshuggah. Some, right. You've got to be superhuman to play some things. And some drummers will program them up and say, yeah, they'll be fine. And then I'll watch them. And I'll be like, there's no fucking way they're ever going to be able to play that. So I'll just tell them, I'll just tell them, there's just no point. You're going to fuck it live and it'll sound shit every night. Yeah. Just don't bother. Um, and, you know, <laughs> most drummers will take that on the chin, you know, because they're like, they feel under pressure to like appease the guitarist and play exactly how the program drums are on the demo or whatever. Right. But more often than not, most drummers will be like, yeah, I definitely can't do that. Um, but, but no, I mean, it's it's not always for me to tell a band how they're going to sound live it's down to them to go away and rehearse um yeah there's a point where my opinion isn't it's not my business Uh, my business is making their record sound good and um i can uh, there'll be moments like that where i'm super honest but otherwise i'll be like well i'm just going to edit this and after a few months they'll be able to play it tight right that's sometimes the someone's paying you to deliver the album you can't not you can't send them home to practice it's just not, right. not a thing <laughs> not so anymore I, I, I'm yeah. sure it was in the 80s wasn't it? <laughs> yeah why don't you go go home and we'll meet back in two months okay don't worry your, your rent will be paid that, yeah yeah and I'm on a retainer so it's fine yeah, exactly it's like, I'll be at my beach house in Malibu I'll see you later <laughs> so you were mentioning key changes and stuff. I mean, how do some of these young screamo guys 
I mean, they just boggle my mind with their voices. How do they keep their voices in shape? And they're going from talking down low to just screaming the paint off the walls in in a heartbeat. How do they keep their voices in good shape? Well, they they almost all warm up and do a lot of different vocal warm ups. Um, they, but I think some people's voices are just built to be able to do that stuff. Yeah. You know? Like if I was to try and do that, I'd be I'd have a hoarse throat for the next week, and I'd right. you know I'd, I'd I'd add a few tones down when I talk. Yeah. I sound like Johnny Cash. Like it was, it's not natural for me. Some people can just make that noise naturally, and then it's about I guess their throats and their their whatever's going on in there just condition and adjust to it. But they do need to do a lot of warming up and a lot of kind of. Um, you know, lots of drinking honey and drinking mm. ginger and honey in the studio. That seems to be the way. Um, but, I mean, in the studio, I tend to, even the best metal vocalists who do it all day long, you know, there's a point where they, their throat just dries up. So, you know, often if I'm recording like a brute, like Berry Tomorrow, the, the, the heavy vocalist in Berry mm-hmm. Tomorrow, a really, like, low guttural thing. Yeah. And, I, you know, he, he's one of the few anomalies where he can just sing like that all day and night and it stays the same. But, but, you know, other bands, I would always suggest staggering the, the vocal takes in the studio, like do a couple right. of days, take a break, come back to it, because I don't want to, like, shoot, like, ruin their throat, basically. Yeah. By just over-singing. Well, who would your, uh, who's your dream act to work with? <sighs> hmm. That's a tough one. Um, well, to go full circle, it would be Metallica, but... I'm not really a fan of Metallica's output and haven't been for a long time. Yeah. Um, so I don't know whether that would be painful for me, but um, <laughs> I, do you know what? I, I, I really don't know. I think I'd probably like to work with Slipknot in, in the realm yeah. that I'm in. I think they still make great music. Corey Taylor looks like a dude. Like, yeah. And a friend of mine is now the bassist. So I've got one in there, but I mean, you know, to, to get those top, top gigs, you either need to have pocketed a bunch of Grammys by now or have a bunch of Grammys at some point. You need to be way up the food chain because yeah. no one's going to invest that kind of money uh, otherwise. So there'll, there'll be a point where I hope, you know, my career trajectory is going in a way where I hope at some point in the future I'll get to that top tier and I, I just have to keep working hard for it. But I think, yeah, I'm aiming for that top tier um, of working with the, the, the biggest bands on the planet. I mean, why not, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's awesome, dude. You want to do my lightning round real quick? Sure. This is just, I just fire a question at you and you just answer, pop off the top of your head or think about it, whatever you want. <laughs> what's, your, what's your favorite book? Dude, I'm not a big reader actually. I could count the amount of books on one hand um, that I've read, which is terrible. All right, then. I'll have to come back to that. Okay. Are you a bath or a shower guy? Shower. Too big for the bath. (laughs) What's the last gift you gave someone? My girlfriend's garden just got landscaped. Nice. I covered that well nice i covered it in that there's a band i'm working with who who want me to do their record and didn't quite have the budget for it but he happened to be a landscape gardener so i said (laughs) 
if you, if you landscape my girlfriend's garden, and that's not a euphemism, I will uh, I will produce your album. <laughs> so I haven't, awesome. I haven't paid in cash, but I'm paying in heart, in blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah, that's awesome. Does England have any Bigfoot type monsters, and do you believe in them? We have a thing called the Beast of Bodmin Moor. You should look it up. Bodmin Moor is like a. How do you spell that? It's an that? area of, of kind of. Um, it's just moors, just hills and hills for miles, as far as the eye can see. And apparently, there's like a black panther or some kind of cougar that roams. Um, obviously, we have the Loch Ness monster up in Scotland, so we, right. we claim that as ours too. But it's not ours, really. Um, no, but beyond that, we don't have a Bigfoot. Um, that's it, I think. The Beast of Bogman Moor. Yeah, look it up. There's loads right. of sightings. What was the uh, first concert you saw? How old were you? And did you get a T-shirt? First concert I saw, I think the first sort of gig I went to on my own was Korn when they were doing the the first album tour. And I didn't get a T-shirt because my friend... uh, I think he must have done so many drugs or whatever he was doing at the time. He got himself in a really bad way and I had to sort of like carry him out of the venue and uh, get him in a taxi because he was vomiting everywhere. So I missed the end of the gig and missed the getting a t-shirt bit. Couldn't just say like, (laughs) sit here on the curb. I'll be right back. (laughs) I forgot all about that. It's only you asking that question that's made me go back there. But I remember it was Corn and Incubus were supporting them and Incubus had just brought out their first EP and it, I became a huge Incubus fan after yeah. that. You'll have, to, you'll have to call your buddy and remind him that he owes you a corn T-shirt. <laughs> 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 What's the last movie you saw in a theater? Oh, fuck. Post-COVID question like that. Um, hmm. <laughs> Dude, I, I haven't got a fucking clue. Um, it feels like cinemas and theaters... It's a thing of the past. It's just walked away in my mind. Um, I think it might have been, and it was a while ago, might have been Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan. (sighs) Such a great movie. It's fucking, yeah. I mean, Christopher Nolan is like God. Although, if you've ever been on an airplane, you know that a Spitfire could never glide that far. Ever. (laughs) It'd be in the sea. (laughs) It'd be in the sea. Yeah. So, what was your nickname growing up? Um, I've got a few. The Lummox was a popular <laughs> one. Uh, Buttfang. Um, you know the scene in uh, I think I the Jedi when when Boba Fett's like almost falling into the sand and there's the teeth. Um, oh yeah, I think it's Return of the Jedi. Well, apparently when I used to play guitar when I was younger, I used to wear like baggy cords and baggy jeans because, you know, I was just like a 90s metal kid. And yeah. Like, when I'd stand up, apparently my ass would like swallow my trousers. <laughs> and someone likened my ass to that thing in the sand with the teeth and then christened me butt fang. I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, if yeah. money was no object, what guitar or piece of gear would you buy? Ooh. Well, I'm not like you. In, in, I don't have a lust for guitar collection. I wish <laughs> I did. I just don't have a. I don't have the knowledge of it enough. It's not my area. Like, yeah. I'm into cars and stuff, I guess. But but if I was to have a piece of gear, fuck. 
Or what car would you buy? Uh, well, a classic car or a modern car? It's your money. Mm. Well, the thing is, right, I will caveat this answer. <laughs> As I've gotten older, I figure I'll look, the, the older I get, the more douchey I will look in a really flash car, and I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. So if you'd asked me 15 years ago, I would have said like a, a Ferrari Testarossa or something. But now I wouldn't be seen dead in one of them, yeah. um, given the chance. So it would probably be something that still was ruthlessly fast and noisy, but looked a bit more subtle, like a an RS Audi or an AMG Mercedes, something with a V8 or an M5. Dude, the new Audi RS... What is it? The the e-tron. Oh, the electric car. one looks amazing, doesn't it? Six hundred and thirty-four horsepower. I've just ordered an Audi. It, granted, it's not an RS, um, but it's a uh, it's sort of like a luxury one before you get to that called the Vorsprung. But I've because there's this massive microchip shortage in the world. I don't know if you heard right. this shit, but yeah. the whole car industry is ground to a halt. Yeah. So. I ordered it in July, and they've just told me it will arrive on the 30th of June. So <laughs> it's what, what did you order? Around. It's an A4 Avant. Okay. Because I had an S5. I think you saw that. And then yeah. my, wife, my wife has an SQ5. So we're big yeah, Audi fans. Well, the Q5 is made in Mexico. Did you know that? The, is it really? Randomly. Yeah. And that, so if you want a Q5, you've got to add... I think what they do is they build it in Mexico, then they send it to Barcelona for some bits, then they send it to Germany, then they send it to England. So you're like on a sort of year and a half wait. I mean, I never saw myself getting. I mean, you, you guys call them station wagons. I think we call them estates. The state, yeah, uh, dude, the A6 yeah. is awesome. I never thought I'd see the day where I would buy a fucking estate. Like I was like, they just look horrible. Like, but now I live with my girlfriend. And her two children, I was like, I have to be sensible now, you know, because I'd always said before we, we we should be sensible and get electric cars, which we should because we care about our planet. Can I be selfish just for one more time and get the last dregs <laughs> of the petrol car? So I'm going to get my AMG before they're illegal. And now it's never going to fucking happen, basically. I've yeah. I'm getting in a stone, got child seats in the back, and we're just going to listen to like the fucking Disney channel while we drive down the motorway. <laughs> That's basically it. My life's fucked. But man, if you get one of those and you lower it and you chip it and you can put all of your marshals and boogies and Paul Reed Smith's in the back, it's still a, a rock and roll hauler, man. Well, there you go. Well, this is the crazy thing. Like it's probably be the first time I've bought a car that can actually fit guitars without having to like, mm-hmm. like work out different geometry to fit them all in. Right. You know, it's actually got some space. Well, what would you be doing if you weren't producing records? Dude, I've asked myself this a lot when I've thought, fuck this industry, I'm out, you know, yeah. I've just like worked around the clock and I'm exhausted and, you know, and I don't really know the answer. Like, I wanted to be a professional golfer, but I don't think I had the temperament for it because you got to be like, you know, I love golf, but I can't get a handle on my emotions if I'm playing shit, which yeah. you need to. Um, I think I'd probably be in some kind of sales, but because I like people and I and I like to think I can, you know, sell myself when I need to to get a record. So maybe sales, but then. You know, a lot of salespeople I know are fucking idiots. So I, I don't know if I'd want to be one of them. So, I, yeah, I mean, 
I mean, the dream job for me now, above all, would be to be working in Formula One. Like it would be to to be in that circus, to to be PR manager for fucking McLaren or something, or just something where I get to be immersed in Formula One. Um, but again, that ship has sailed. I think. Yeah. Did you uh, have you seen the Schumacher documentary? I have. Yeah. Oh, it's so great. So great. His uh, son is clearly a lovely guy, isn't he, Mick? Yeah. Really. Yeah. It doesn't matter what Nikita Mazepin says or does about Mick Schumacher, no one will ever take his side because Mick is A, better, B, just a really lovely guy. Yeah. He just, it, it's hard to dislike the kid. And he doesn't whinge about, you know, complaining and pointing fingers and whatever else. And it's like, dude, shut up. You're, you're definitely picking on the wrong guy when you pick on Mick. Because yeah. nobody doesn't yeah. like him. So. No, he's got that thing. Because even Michael and Ralph had the unlikable sociopath trait where you're like, <laughs> God, what is it about Michael Schumacher? He's he's evil. He used to do some nasty things, didn't he, in Monaco and, you know, yep. took out Damon Hill in Adelaide, all that stuff. But Mick doesn't seem to have that. Mick's mm-hmm. got this sort of just nice kids. And it's even quite fun sometimes to hate on people who've had kind of privileged upbringings and, uh, you know, fun yeah. dad and all that stuff. But he's just a nice kid and he's fast. And, he, and he, you know, he won F2 without – he didn't have someone pushing the car. He, he won yeah. on pace. You know? I wonder if he gets that niceness from his, from his mom because she just seems 100% sweetness too. She really does, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really touching – touching program that to watch and and you know i don't know it's one of those it's been so shielded from us as formula one fans since the accident no one's ever seen him no one Mm. knows what's going on it almost helps you to forget who he was and what he did and then when you see all those classic moments and interviews it i don't know it brought it all back to me i was like wow this guy what a sad story you know it's just such an injustice isn't it it's like when you see frank williams in his wheelchair it's brought to your mind immediately what the Williams F1 team did for so long and how great they were. And yeah, you're right. We haven't heard hiding her hair of, of Michael. Haven't heard. I mean, if he can talk, if he can walk, nothing, which, which obviously is the family's prerogative not to make a circus out of it. And I think they've done that amazingly well, but yeah, you, you forget that you forget behind that smile was, <laughs> could be an evil little man sometimes. <laughs> oh, he was ruthless. But, you know, all the greats, Hamilton has that. Hamilton's got yeah. a vindictive, spoiled brat thing in there. Yep. You can see it. Um, Verstappen definitely has it. Yep. You know? um, Nico Rosberg definitely has it. Yeah. Um, Senna had it in droves, you know. Um, like a, a lot of the real greats, they have a sort of a fuck the rest mentality yeah which is like they can't reconcile losing to to the to the others like they're the best you know and you know that you got to admire i mean god i'd much prefer obviously at the moment when when max and hamilton collide it's it's sad for the race for a second because you want to see them race but then when you look at it objectively you're like this is fucking great because this yeah. is the drama we love and and now with Drive to Survive, we're all like, oh, can't yeah. wait to see the next season of that, you know, because you know it's going to be all the bitching and all that stuff. What a great show um, that is. 
Dude, it's fucking great. Uh, actually, a friend of mine was just telling me about his friend uh, who's a. They work in TV. And this friend of mine works in sound on like X Factor and things. But he, he was like, his friend was like a freelance camera guy on X Factor, and then then he got employed by Formula One, uh, Liberty Media, to sort of go around. And now he's being now he's being employed as a producer on Drive to Survive, and he's just basically. He's getting paid more than he ever got anywhere because Netflix is just like a bottomless pit of money. Yeah, no and essentially just being paid to travel around filming and doing interviews with the Formula One oh, masses. I mean, so great. A dream gig. Do you think yeah. sometimes the the almost bordering on silliness of Lando and Daniel Ricardo? I mean, do you think that holds them back even a little bit? As with it almost seems they don't have that ruthless side. I mean, I love both those guys and I think they're both fantastically talented, but they don't, I don't know that you would call them ruthless though. No, it's a, it's a good point. It's, I think Lando realized that his silliness, especially when him and Carlos were teammates, his yeah. silliness might create the impression that he doesn't take his job seriously, but actually he's maintained his silliness and his smiley, affable, yeah. nice chat. Thing, but he's ruthlessly fast now, I and mean, he's with oh, Danny yeah. Rick. And I actually think he is in that high echelon that that Charlotte clerks in Verstappen, Hamilton, where they're a little bit faster than everyone. Because Danny Rick beat him in Monza on a circuit where cornering wasn't as essential with zero right. downforce, just floor it. <clears throat> but then straight to the next race, Sochi, Lando was. In practice and qualifying, half a second, six tenths up on him again. I do think Lando is in like the highest bracket. I don't know if you saw that news story this week that um, uh, Helmut Marko admitted that that um, they tried to entice Lando to Red Bull before agreeing the Perez deal. They tried to get really. To I didn't see that. Red Bull Max, yeah, that would have like, been interesting. But I think he's done the right thing staying at McLaren because he's. He's shown himself to be quicker than a guy who's considered to be in the elite. Are you well, and, to be honest, Danny Rick only left Red Bull because he knew he couldn't beat Max. Yeah, like he, yeah. he threw in the towel, didn't he? It was humiliating. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm a I'm a big fan of Zach Brown too, and I think it's gonna it it you can see how long it takes to turn a Formula One team around, and you can't be one of these teams that's firing their principles, you know, every two years, because that you you can't ever build any momentum doing anything like that. So I, I'm a big fan of Zach Browns. Oh, because that guy is just the best. And, and the fact, I mean, I'm a big IndyCar fan too, and the fact yeah. that he's just constantly jumping on a plane <laughs> in both both pits, you know. He, he, he's got the sort of IndyCar mentality, which is like, we're all buddies, let's just have a beer after the race. And he yeah. brings it to Formula One where there's a lot more sort of Stuffy like Christian Horner's kind of a bit of a little snivelly weasel, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that Brown's just a dude where you're like, I want to go and have a drink with that guy. Yeah. And you know, you can see that he's kind of like a father figure to Lando and Danny Rick. They just love him. Um, yeah. It just looks like a great place to be, doesn't it, McLaren? Really oh, does. man. Love it. Except for it's orange. I don't care for orange. But no. You can't have Mar- Marlboro comebacks since. Uh, I know it. It'd be great if someone hijacked the Marlboro colours and and uh, used that as their brand, so we could have those colours back again. Uh, it'd be so great. So what's next, man? What are you working on? What haven't I asked you about? Well, I've just uh, this time off. I've been telling you about. I've yeah. been looking for 
Well, I think what I want to do is, is mix a lot more records. I really love mixing. Um, hmm. I, I get to go away a lot less and be around my family a lot more, which is important to me now. So I've been looking, yeah. while I've had this time off, I thought I need to find a London space somewhere that's really shit hot um, that I can mix records down the road and travel home at night and you know see the family and stuff. So I've just this week, in fact, yesterday agreed on a place so i'm uh i'm going to start moving stuff into there over the next few months and that will be my new home and um i'll do a cool. lot of my writing and, and vocal and uh overdubs and stuff in there and mix so but yeah in terms of jobs i've got uh this banbury tomorrow i'm doing there we're doing two singles in november um and then another band that i've worked with a lot from wales uh, dream state we're going to work together um band called mason hill from scotland i'm gonna work with them at some point uh, and then i'm doing an album I probably shouldn't say on a podcast because it's not out yet but i'm doing an album uh, they haven't announced they're doing it we're doing an album in december with the band um all of december and then i've got three more albums booked in for next year in the early part of next year so i've basically yes. got lots of stuff coming in <laughs> so good yeah thing. i'm for punishment good thing you took the time off oh dude it's been essential. Yeah. Essential. So, uh, is there any socials you want to mention? How can people get a hold of you? Where can they find you? So you can go to my website, which is, um, danwellermusic.com. Um, or, and I do tweets. Uh, my handle on Twitter is literally Dan Weller. I got in there early back in the day. Um, but I'm mainly on Instagram, uh, which is, it's a bit of an in-joke that no one seems to get, but it's spelled Dan Duella, which in Spanish is pronounced Dan Juela. Right, so, so, Yeah, Dan So uh, Dan Duella <laughs> is my Instagram name. So you can find me on there if you want to watch me awesome. looking boring in a studio. Yeah, there's a lot of pictures at the back of your head in there. It's pretty good. <laughs> That's the best bit, yeah. <laughs> well, man, thank you for taking so much time during your time off and everything. I really appreciate it. It's good to catch up with you again, dude. Dude, you too. Really good to see you. And um, yeah. it's my pleasure. It's nice to nice to see a, a friendly face and have a chat, you know. That's yeah, what it's all about this absolutely. Life, absolutely. Well, cool, man. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, take it easy, man. Okay, bye. Bye now.